This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Guardian Football Weekly. And if the group stage is finished with an almighty crescendo, the knockouts begin with a bit of a futt. Argentina were average for long periods, but comfortable enough to beat a spirited, organised Australia team. Lionel Messi woke up for five seconds. Matty Ryan didn't get it launched. The Socceroos got one back and then one run from Aziz Bayic. And in that last minute, Garan Kual imagined. Before that, the US dominated the Dutch for about five minutes. One Pulisic chance and that was basically it. Memphis blint and Dumfries on target for Louis van Gaal's men. Hadji Wright did score a ridiculous goal, but the midfield were knackered. And that was that. Also today, we'll try to explain what's happening at Juventus. We'll talk about the greatness of Pele. Look ahead to England, Senegal and find out who beat up who in Wilson Rone Towers after the Sunderland Millwall game earlier today. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, uh, from a busy media centre, just after full time, the press conference room uh, in Argentina, Australia. Jonathan Wilson, hello. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Hi, Nikki Bandini. Hi. And Marcela Mora y Jarajo in Buenos Aires. Uh, Got a cigarette on the go. Is that a cigarette of relief, Marcela? It's a cigarette of delight. (laughs) Carry on. What did you make of it? And also, it's just your box standard cigarette after ninety minutes of not being allowed no, to smoke, fair which is, you know, any any result would have led to this. Look, I mean, Argentina, they deserve to win. You know, by the end of the second half, they had so many chances, but there was that moment, wasn't there, in the last minute when this eighteen-year-old Garan Qual, who I think Newcastle are going to sign, had this chance, and you thought it couldn't possibly happen, could it? Well, I think the whole point of this exercises that it could possibly happen and that's why uh several people around me now are having <laughs> hyper <laughs> hyper cardiac <laughs> problems but um it was it was i don't know i mean i'm really interested to hear what everyone else thinks because if you're not, if your emotions aren't tied up into it you can probably see more clearly i think it looked okay easy and then it suddenly was super dangerous. And I think there was a, a, a last minute, very last minute chance that Australia had, which was super scary. But actually, there were quite a few minutes during that second half, especially where, it, you know, Argentina's kind of possession and passing and whatever weren't that clearly an amazing advantage. I mean, but I was afraid. I don't know <laughs> how the players felt. They also do look tired. I'm extremely worried about how tired and hot they all look. Yeah, uh, Wilson, what did you make of it? You were there. Yeah, I mean, I think Argentina made it harder than it needed to be. The first half was pretty. They were a little bit diffident. I thought Argentina they could have. They didn't have the same aggression they had against Poland. Uh, and then I don't know if you noticed just before the goal um, that Beard should sort of just left one in on, on Messi and Messi having he, he misplaced like three passes in five, ten minutes before that and suddenly you saw oh, you shouldn't have done that 
and and it was it was just where I was in the stadium. <laughs> it was right beneath me where it happened. That uh, the corners was a corner or was a free kick is cleared, and then Papa Gomez plays actually a really bad pass out to him, and I was just turning to, to John Cross from the movie, sat next to me going, "That's a terrible pass." And then he thought, actually, his message doesn't matter. And actually, because the pass was so bad, it just drew Australia out. They thought they could, they could get it. And he gives it to McAllister, McAllister to Otamendi, whether that's a touch or a, you know, whether, you know, whether he'd, they'd be laid off, whether that's just a poor first touch. And, and you, you'd see exactly the tunnel that Messi was going to run through from where I was sitting. And you sort of knew, I mean, probably half a second before it went in, but it felt inevitable for... For, for a while before that, but there was that bitch chance when he. <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, last time I saw a defence part like that was Chelsea for Neda Manua. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was such an amazing moment, wasn't it? It could have been an, it would have been an absolutely amazing goal and a brilliant tackle from Lissandro Martinez, actually. Nicky, on the, on the subject of Messi, uh, Jamie says, why are they talking about a moment of brilliance? It was a bog-standard turn and shot through a defender's legs. The keeper saw it late. wasn't even the corner. Not everything he does is brilliant. Look, Marcella is frowning already. What, what do you think, Nicky? I don't think I agree with that, really, because like, it's not just the shot, is it? It starts with him taking the ball down so smoothly on the, on the sideline. There's a really neat, um, everyone was sharing on socials, there was a, a really neat, like, fan shot I think um angle from the sideline which I always think I, I never understand people who sit inside a stadium and watch the game through a phone because y you're seeing the game right in front of you and seeing it through that camera you're going to see it much worse and I always think to myself you're not going to get a better shot than the professionals do but this person did perhaps <laughs> get a better shot than the professionals do because you see the ball come down and and the way Messi brings it down and, and I think just the way he sees that that space and attacks it right away you know, it's not the greatest goal he's ever scored. He scored so many, so many better. But I think this was his first knockout goal at a World Cup, which is kind of extraordinary when you think everything he has um, he has done in his career. So it was it was a moment. It was what the game needed because I thought that first half, unlike the second half, which got quite interesting, the first half was quite short on incident. And uh, and I think it it needed that a little bit to to liven it up. When you um when you said when you began that with an SH, I thought it was going to be a much shorter phrase, <laughs> Nicky. A, th a thousand games for, for Messi, 789 goals. And actually, Marcella, by the end, Messi was, he was purring, wasn't he? Yeah, I think it, um, it's exactly that. It, it didn't feel like it was happening and we were watching him specifically here. And luckily I will have hours more of uh, entire programmes devoted to just showing us the cameras on Messi for um, the rest of the evening. But we, I thought, oh, he's slouching again and he's standing in the middle. He's just looking around. Oh, dear. And then it's almost like he was drawing that root in his head. So I completely agree with Nick. It wasn't the shot. It was the entire build-up to it, which completely changed the dynamic of the game. And after that, he was like plugged in and people were, you know, everyone was kind of messaging each other and here we're going, oh, yes, he's plugged in. I think my brother screamed, he's an angel, he's an angel. <laughs> but I do think it was intelligent playmaking. It wasn't that the shot is brilliant because everything Messi does is brilliant. It's because you could just see, literally see his mental process uh, along with his physical decisions it's just the most fantastic football ever I wish it just lasted that long and then that was it because it becomes slightly agonizing when it goes on and on without such brilliance you know consistently held well so was this Argentina being tournament savvy and sort of just doing enough or are they not as good as we perhaps 
suggested they were before the tournament began. Um, I think it's, there is something odd that they yeah they come into the tournament in the back of a 36 game and beaten them, and yet it kind of feels like they're making it up as, as they go along now. And uh, yeah, this team obviously is pretty similar, apart from De Maria to the to the Poland team. So I think they've got that midfield right now. But I, I mean, they should have won this easily. You know, Latar Martinez misses those two chances. There's a whole load of chances. They, the goal was the Australian goal was a freak, and that obviously changes the game. So it could easily have been two or three nil, and we just said that was just sort of a team playing at seven out of ten, not overextending themselves. And yeah, I guess you could also say Australia gave them the second goal. I don't, I don't know if you um, read Jorge Valdano's column in El Pais this week, but there's a classic Valdano column complaining about how football is bureaucratic these days and there's no sort of imagination or flair or magic in the opposition box. And he made a very good point that teams now take more risks in their own box than the opponent's box. And that's exactly what causes the, the goal. There's no need, once, once um, Beach is under pressure, there's no need to keep playing it back. Just get, get rid of it. I mean, I'm, I'm all in favour of, of getting it launched. And, you know, there are just times, you know, actually Australia actually kept the ball really well at the back for long. There was this period in the first half, Nicky, and I was like, this is weird. Australia are sort of dominating. Okay, the, the ball's in their half, mainly in their box, but they really just, Argentina aren't pressing at all. Like, nothing is happening. Yeah, I mean, to pick up on what Jonathan just said about the team being quite subtle, that, because you mentioned Di Maria there as the one thing that was different, Jonathan. I think that was quite fundamental actually I think it's it, you know so far in this tournament a lot of the play has gone down through Maria on the right hand side and it felt like in this game they were trying to sort of flip it and have Gomez be the more advanced sort of wing for a little while and that wasn't really working because that does have a knock-on impact Messi's used to receiving the ball from the right hand side he's used to to having the ball come from that side and then Gomez ended up switching sides and I, I don't know I thought that that the absence of Di Maria was was quite impactful and it's interesting to me and even that that's where the space Messi ends up taking the ball from for that goal is he takes it from that right-hand side where perhaps there might have been someone else if, if Di Maria had been there. But I um, I, I think in terms of, of the second half, um, Max, I, I don't know, I, I felt like Argentina retreated far too quickly into this is under control and we're just going to see it out. And it doesn't seem to me that they're very good at that, which um, I'm sure Marcella could speak to more um, authoritatively, but it, it just felt like, I mean, certainly with the substitutions when they came in, when Gomez goes off, not that Gomez was having a great game, that was a 1-0 and you're taking off a forward and going to a back three, which becomes a back five, which feels very sort of, I don't know, with all respect to Australia, I guess, like it feels like you're Argentina, is that really the line you're taking in the 50th minute? Wilson, could you act as... The, the the proxy for Georges Valdano since he's not on this pod about whether Argentina should fear the Netherlands. We'll talk about their win in, in just a second, but you do sense actually that that is a tighter game than perhaps I would have thought it was even before these two matches. Oh yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I think that'd be a great game. I, I, I wouldn't want to call a winner. I mean, I assume, I mean, I actually thought, I, I, I agree with Nicky that the that, that retreat happened too early but I also think that wasn't a result of going to the back three I think that was a mental thing that happened after that I actually thought the first 10-15 minutes with the back three was probably the most under control Argentina had it and I think it was just getting an extra body in the middle the other impact of that though was that the full back, Australian fullback suddenly had space they didn't have direct opponents they could advance a bit more and they had space before they were hitting the, 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 the Argentinian wing backs which is what allows Beach that, that, that run but then again if you're letting a 31-year-old from Dundee United run at you and that's the biggest threat, maybe that, <laughs> maybe that's a risk you take. 
Um, we should talk about Australia for a second, Nicky, because they, they should leave this tournament proud to get through, to get past, uh, you know, Denmark to win two of their group games. They don't win many World Cup matches. And to push Argentina to have those chances. And so many people talking about Harry Souter, you know, Suddy saying, how much is Suter going to cost a Premier League team in January? Will it be a new record for a centre-back in the league? He was a sort of, he was talismanic, wasn't he really, for them? Yeah, and I think he, he obviously has been in this tournament. And he's already, it feels like, it's one of those things, isn't it? He's played well. And I also think there's a little bit where it's just because he stands out so much because he is so big, because he's so tall. That helps sort of add to this hype around him. But he's had a good tournament. And then he he started this game really well. I mean, he, he sort of put Messi on the floor, didn't he, at the beginning of this game, which is probably, I'm sure if you're playing against Leo Messi and you're a, a young defender like, like Suter is, it's probably like a really like, reassuring thing to be able to do just once to like be like okay like I've got something on you you're, you're clearly still Leo Messi but like I've managed to to show you that I've got something to my game that you can't um you can't get around and um and I thought he had quite a good game I mean I don't think you could say at all that Argentina sort of ran rampant could you and 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 he was probably I was thinking in the first half he was probably the the best Australia performer he was the one who reacted most it looked like to try and get a block on that messy shot he still wasn't where he needed to be but no one else seemed to be getting any closer to it um and I thought yeah he he overall had a pretty good game in a, in a very good tournament and yes it seems like he's going to be one of the big talked about January transfers I think this uh this window coming off the back of the World Cup yeah Graham Arnold did very well and super organized you know they're real collective and to push Argentina that close they they should be um, incredibly proud. So what happens now, Marcella, in Argentina in the lead-up to the Dutch? Does anything else happen in Argentina apart from just talking about the Dutch game now? There was a lot of complaints about the closeness of the, these last two games. So there's a sense now that we have five days. Well, it might be five days off, or maybe some people will watch football like out of just recreational pursuit, watch other other matches and go, oh, look, that's interesting. I think it, it's really interesting that, that this whole kind of mood thing and the frenzy and the, um, you know, Argentinians who travelled to Qatar were saying they, they flew with other Latin American countries on the plane and they were all singing, we love all America Latina except for Argentina and stuff because we, we've got this reputation as, as being a little bit arrogant and too full of ourselves and that first game really just stopped that so it's now we're all humble and in a state of permanent fear <laughs> and and that hopefully won't sustain for five days but come the next fixture it'll rev up again um but also incredibly incredible joy at the end of that match today like you could see the players on the pitch as well and it's just all like kind of, you know, this organic thing where everyone's waving their shirt at the same time, singing the same songs and so on. And uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was some mayhem around town squares throughout the country tonight. Are you suggest are you saying you're not going to be in the middle of that mayhem? No, I'm just not. Sort of because I'm sitting on top of a car and... I'm just waiting patiently till retirement age hits and I'm yeah. certainly not going to go into some kind of frenzied football mob. I've got teenage boys here. I don't need to go seeking them elsewhere. Oh, well, listen, Marcella, it's always good to have you on and we will have you on for the for the next one, if that's okay with you. It makes me want Argentina to go to the final just to 
guests get you on every time. But anyway, you don't need any <laughs> compliments from me. Um, uh, thank you, Marcella. <laughs> Lovely to see you all. Cheers, Marcella Mora y Araujo. Uh, and that'll do for part one. Oh, very quickly, Wilson, um, Republica played at halftime. It's a very 90s feel to the halftime shows. How was it, uh, using your musical aficionado's hat? Oh, it's tremendous. Uh, it's the second time yeah. I've seen her. Uh, she she yeah. did the Stadium Light once. I think I think her and Shakira are the only actors I've ever seen twice. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, her and Chesney Hawks. You wonder, you wonder who just is doing the bookings, whether, whether Richard Keyes has a hand in that. Seems very much, very much his era. It's very 90s, isn't it? Uh, anyway, uh, where Simple Minds do the final, you know, and they do a live and kicking. But, oh, those are the best years of the Premier League, weren't they? Anyway, look, that'll do uh, for part one. Uh, part two, uh, we'll talk about the Netherlands beating the USA. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly then. So look, the Netherlands beat the USA uh, 3-1. Before we talk to the panel, uh, let's talk to Brian Armand Graham, who was covering the game for the Guardian and was uh, at the ground. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really good. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you to ask. Not many people do. <laughs> what did you, from a US perspective, you just feel that Pulisic's chance was so big at the start. And then after that, it was a kind, they were kind of schooled in this game, weren't they? I think they very much were. I think they were sort of tactically... Uh, overmatched. Um, I think I really look at the midfield, the sort of controlled and efficient presence of that uh, Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, Eunice Musa midfield. That was really the Americans' biggest strength in this whole tournament. And really going into this match, uh, the biggest source of optimism um, just didn't really answer the bell today. I, w- I was worried they had left it all on the field during the group. And uh, my fears were confirmed in the first quarter hour. I mean, Adams was nowhere close to Memphis on the goal. You know, McKenney was replaced before the hour mark. Uh, Musa spent most, you know, looked spent from the word go, making a lot of poor giveaways that led to Dutch chances. I think physical and mental fatigue were kind of working hand in hand. Um, you know, the midfield was so good because they were so active uh, in this tournament, and that just wasn't the case today. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I, and you sort of feel part of part of the issue, I don't know, it probably wouldn't have reflected on them as a team, but people had started to say, do you know what, I really fancy the US against the Netherlands because the Netherlands hadn't been that great. And I suppose once you go into a game with those kind of expectations, it can be more difficult. Well, you know, it's really funny because my many, many Guardian colleagues here, almost almost to a man, uh, all were sort of leaning towards the United States and really thinking they could win. And I was a bit, you know, pessimistic because it's such a young team. You know, this was a big step up. I did feel like they really sort of left a lot out there in that sort of winning, win, or not sort of, that winner-go-home game against Iran. And, you know, in the end, I think, you know, this was one of the youngest teams of the tournament. They, you know, started, for, uh, you know, the three youngest uh, starting 11s in the tournament. Uh, four of the four of the youngest five. Um, I think it was um, a learning experience for them, and uh, you know, going up against a team like the Netherlands, you know, maybe not the sort of you know the Netherlands that we remember from eight or twelve years ago, but you know, it's uh, 
this was going to be a tough one for them, a, a professional team with a lot of teams, you know, with champion players with Champions League experience and stuff. And I think uh, in the end, their ruthlessness uh, and finishing ability really sort of won the day. Hoodie, a listener, writes, I watched the US Netherlands while I was painting a door. Tell me a player that the US coach should have obviously played more. I'm heading to the bar and I want to sound like I know what I'm talking about. Could you say Gio Reyna perhaps didn't get as much time on the pitch as we perhaps expected? Oh, I, I mean, I think that would be the almost unanimous answer. I think there was a lot of, um, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of confusion about why he wasn't involved with the team from the start. And I know he's coming back from a series of injuries, um, but there was a bit of miscommunication, um, you know, after the first game when uh, he wasn't in the team and he didn't even play. Um, he had said that he was fit um, and that sort of, there was a bit of cross-communication with uh, the manager, Greg Berhalter. Um, and then he only came on, I believe, for eight minutes in the second uh, match. Uh, he didn't play at all against Iran. And they really, um, you know, especially in that Iran match, when you, uh, you feel like uh, they could have really um, used him a lot more, especially because, you know, they left some um, other players at home, like Ricardo Pepe, I don't know. I, I, I think there's, that's going to really be one of the big questions coming out of this tournament about what, why he wasn't involved a lot more. Is Berhalter's job safe? I mean, he's done well with this young crop. You're building towards a World Cup that you're co-hosting. You imagine that so many of these players, and it's very hard to read four years ahead, isn't it, but should be at their absolute peak come 2026. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's really, you know, he resisted the notion um, when you brought up that sort of youth movement. I mean, they've really, they, over this entire, over his tenure, they rotated in, you know, over 100 players. He resisted the sort of notion that they, uh, this was a setup that was really building for four years from now. But, you know, in reality, that, that's what it was. The next time the U.S. plays a World Cup match after tonight, it will be on home soil. You know, they did... Uh, they have so many players. I think eight of the uh, starting 11 tonight are 25 or under. Um, you know, Eunice Musa just turned 20 the day of the Iran game or the night of the Iran game. And um, yeah, it's, uh, they're a very, very young team. For the first time, you know, we have more American teenagers than ever are playing sort of in Europe's biggest, you know, five leagues um, instead of coming up, you know, through Major League Soccer, which is just a lower quality. You know, and uh yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of promise, um, but what they really do need to do is develop that sort of um, ruthlessness in front of the net that, you know, was really the difference of the match. They're missing Josie Altador, aren't they, clearly? Now, before we let you go, Brian, um, Jonathan Wilson, who we're about to talk to, has told us to ask you about camel racing. I went to the camel races today, uh, about 40 mile or 40 minute drive uh, west of Doha. It's not really um, for the tourists because uh, there's not a lot of... Uh, English language sort of literature around the event. It, to, to be honest, I actually went there today, not even sure there was uh, uh, races today, but it, in fact, it is the first day of a meet that runs through the 14th. And uh, I will say, as somebody who really does love uh, thoroughbred racing, horse racing, um, just spending time on the sort of backside of the track uh, today with a lot of the um, you know different people that work with the animals and stuff, I do feel that there was a sort of universality there that uh, I felt a lot of uh, it's, you know, backside people are the same everywhere you go. Can I ask a stupid question? Uh, were, were they running on the flat or on the jumps? Oh, uh, they were running on the flat. But, I, you know, the, the one <laughs> thing that really did, did sort of uh, that, that, that caught my attention is that when the races end, the next one begins almost immediately, like within 
within 15 seconds. It's almost like a relay. <laughs> um, so, you know, instead of having, you know, 30 minutes to, you know, place your punts. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was pretty frenetic. And, uh, and yeah, they have uh, robot jockeys and uh, the, the people, uh, little tiny robots on, on top of the camels because they outlawed children doing it about 15 years ago. And uh, and yeah, it was it was it was quite a scene. So, and how sentient are the robots? I mean, what I mean, what what's the point of the robot? Well, they're flat. Well, so so outside the course, um, outside the course, they're actually trailed by people, a whole caravan of Land Cruisers, uh, and and I believe the people in these Land Cruisers are actually controlling them with a remote control, and you know as they're as they're coming down the home stretch. Uh, sort of flanked by this, you know, complete phalanx of uh, land cruisers. Uh, all the horns start honking. It's uh, it's it's pretty crazy. Uh, it was definitely a different experience, and you know, maybe I'll come back one day. Maybe around the twenty thirty six Olympics. Um, well, we're slightly off topic. I uh, but but Brian, I, I I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on, and uh, hopefully we'll chat to you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Brian Armour Graham. That uh, watching the U.S. Let's bring in the panel. Uh, Nikki Bandini and Jonathan Wilson. Matty says, Blind Dumfries Depay sounds like an old Delta Blues legend. Um, uh, look, look, the uh, the Dutch deserved this, Nikki, didn't they? Tactically spot on, were better. It, it wasn't really a fascinating football match. I thought it was some interesting parts to it. Certainly, I think there was almost, it felt like, in, in, when you looked on socials, this misconception at halftime, like, oh, America, because they came out with more energy and, and more... Um, I don't know, dynamism. Some people felt like they'd been hard done by, but I thought the Dutch knew exactly what they were doing. They were setting traps. They were inviting them forward. I think to some extent they were actually drawing that energy out of America. I think even if you look at the first goal, Tyler Adams chasing back is is so sort of heavy-footed and, and behind Memphis Depay for such a long way. And I think that's laziness to some extent, but they have played four games this tournament always in this very front-footed style, always in this very sort of like up-in-your-face trying um a way of trying to approach the game and i think that the dutch exploited that really effectively it was obviously a a, a brilliant game individually for denzel dumfries who set up two goals and, and scored a goal and, and and in some ways almost that was the perfect setup for him because he's he's a really fascinating player dumfries i think he's he's sort of in in italy had this negative perception almost by simple virtue of the fact that he replaced Ashraf. Hakimi didn't turn it and Hakimi was so good that Dumfries came in and it was like, well, you're not as good as Hakimi was and he, and he isn't. And I think technically as a footballer, he hasn't got Hakimi's gifts. He hasn't got that ability to beat a man one-on-one -on -one in the same way. But when you're asking him just to have that explosiveness to get down the sideline, to put those balls into the middle. He is very effective at it and he can be very effective at it. And, and this was definitely a game for him. And yeah, I mean, the Netherlands were, were, were very comfortable, it felt to me, certainly once the first goal had gone in. And even after the USA scored in the second half, it, it never felt like, because they scored so quickly again, it never felt like the game really came back into the balance. Yeah, uh, Nikki's spot on, isn't she, Wilson? Like, Basically, as far as I can see, the Dutch just let the US centre-backs have it and say, you're not really good enough at passing a ball, so we'll just get it once you've tried to do something clever. Yeah, I, I think the... I mean, you know, you referred to the first goal. I think similar was true for the second and third. That uh, yeah, You see a lot of complaints of, oh, why wasn't Blind picked up? How did Dumfries have space in the back post? Well, because they were knackered, because yeah, the Dutch had just let them run themselves out. So I, I think it was... I mean, this is why I think Van Gaal is fascinating, that... You know, he, he, he's taken the total football model and over sort of 30 years, 35 years even, 
he's he's taking it in a slightly different direction to the way that say Guardiola's taken it. That he's sort of formulated a slightly more defensive version of it. Um, but you see how how smart he still is. Um, so yeah, you. I mean, I watched the first half in a Azerbaijani restaurant uh, near the stadium with loads of Argentinian Australian fans. Uh, it was in sort of this mall uh, with with some Danish gymnasts doing stuff. It was all very odd. <laughs> what like the parallel bars? What what were they doing? Yeah, they're doing like handstands and like you know, you know where like they'll do handstands on top of another one. Like it's holding. Oh yeah, okay. That's not very Britain's Got Talent. That's always very every Britain's Got Talent is just lots of people doing handstands on top of each other. I mean, if you That's think I've watched Britain's Got Talent, Jesus <laughs> Christ! And yeah, this this kind of awful thumping music. I mean, the music was so bad that when when the, the We Are the Dreamers thing came on afterwards, it was this sort of great sense of relief. This sort of like <laughs> this, this sort of very gentle oral breeze cleansing your eardrums. Talking about Van Halen, actually. On a human level, it's such an extraordinary and difficult time in his life. It's such a fascinating part of this Dutch story, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a bit like with Messi that um, every time you see him now, you think, is this the last time? Now, I know Van Hal's now been linked with a Belgian job and seems to be making clear he'd actually quite like that job. And again, that's a very Van Hal thing to do, isn't it? To kind of think, well, the Dutch don't want me anymore, exactly as Johan Cruyff did when he left Ajax and went and won the league with Feyenoord that if he went, went to Belgium and reinvigorated Belgian football, that would be a very sort of Van Gaal thing to do. But I, I can't believe how well he looks, the, the sort of energy he still has, given, I mean, all the treatment he's had. And he's, what, 72, I think? Press conference here, he, he's so obstreperous, and he, he clearly loves being obstreperous. Yes, yeah, so after, after the Senegal game, there was a question from a Brazilian journalist, and a lot of the questions at World Cups, partly because the translation's not perfect, it wasn't really a question. And normally managers sort of vaguely pick up a thread from it and just say something. But Van Gaal was just like, was that a question? That's not a question, a statement. Is that what you think? Or do you want to know what I think? And look, the first goal we should talk about, Nicky, was absolutely beautiful, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... I can't remember any past. It was in the end. It was more than 20 that they were counting out on the build-up. And I think sort of actually sort of really evidence as well of like how much Van Gaal just trusts his players to win the one-on-one situations in this matchup because it was just sort of all the way back and forth trusting each player to to keep it moving on to keep it moving on past the player that was pressing them and yeah it was it was a really really well constructed goal and and actually I thought the last goal was really well constructed as well the way they opened up mm. space for Dumfries the back post when they attacked the Netherlands I thought they were they were really smart about the way they 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 drew people out of position it was it was it was a very very strong performance from them as a, as a team against against a team that they are better than you know I think there's nothing sort of disgraceful for the US in in exiting against the Netherlands either yes Dumfries was the most unmarked player in the history of football for that third goal meanwhile the US goal I mean it gave us a bit of hope that this game might be really exciting. Mike says, I've seen the goal about 20 times now. I still don't understand what happened. Intentional or not, it feels like a FIFA glitch. I said, was it intentional? If it's intentional, it's the best finish of all time, to which Will said, based on his first touch about a minute ago, it definitely wasn't intended. Um, it wasn't, was it, Wilson? It was, it was like, I've never seen that before, I don't think. Yeah, I I, I mean, it, you know, what, yeah, I got to the media centre, watched it, and... I, I just don't know what happened. I mean, he, did he sort of back it into the ground, send spinning up? I, I couldn't, I couldn't work sp- out. Span over his foot, but just really high and like. But somehow just squirted off the sort of inside of his heel, and, and it, it sort of 
it was one of those where you couldn't quite believe what had happened. You sort of got the sense that the keeper couldn't quite believe what had happened. And you sort of see, oh, it must be offside or something. It doesn't feel quite right, just the way that everybody had to sort of stop and, and watch it and nobody could stop it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely astonishing finish. But I, I can't... I mean, the thing is, if he did mean it, it's such a high-tower thing to do. It's still almost certainly the wrong thing to have done. <laughs> it was amazing, wasn't it? Anyway, look, the Dutch, pretty comfortable winners. And that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll look ahead to England-Senegal. Uh, we'll discuss uh, Pele and we'll talk about uh, the situation at Juventus too. Back in a sec. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. So England play Senegal uh, in their march to win the 2022 World Cup. Like all the World Cups that they have won before, they have a full squad to pick from. Uh, Senegal are missing Idrissa Ghana Gay is suspended. Kuates are missing with a... An, an-, an ankle injury. What do you think's going to happen, Nikki? I think England will win. Of course, I've seen all the, everyone's seen it now, the, the curse stat about when England play knockout games on ITV, basically they always lose. So because it's on ITV, presumably that means England will lose. But no, I, I think England have been one of the more convincing teams in the tournament so far. And I think they should expect to beat most teams in this tournament, not all of them, but I think Senegal are one they should expect to beat. Having said that, Senegal have played played well too. I think Saar's been one of the players who's really stood out to me in this tournament as someone who I, I guess has sort of caught my eye and, and really impressed. Clearly missing Mane up front, but they're, they're a team that could beat England. I, I think England are the better team and they're a team I expect to go through, but I think it'll be a good game of football. Yeah, I mean, Senegal, they're, they're very big, they're very physical, they're very well organised. I think they're by far the best pressing team in Africa. I think they're very sensible about how they use the press. Um, that yeah, they, they use it sparingly. The, 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 the thing that struck me, I, mean, I went to two of their group games, um, that they, they don't look as defensively solid in this tournament as they did at the Cup of Nations. Now, obviously, they're playing a high level of opposition. Cup of Nations only let in two goals in seven games. They've let in four goals in three in this one. And all the goals, I think, have come in the last half hour of games. So that, that maybe is a slight concern that, that maybe they, they, they struggle to sustain that intensity. Uh, but the absence of those three players is huge. Marnie, we knew about. Um, and he is their main goal threat. But Kiate and, and Gay, um, you have three of them, of the three players who played together in the 2012 Olympics, when Ali Assise, who's now the senior coach, was the assistant coach. Um, and they're sort of the, the real core of the side. So them not being there, I think, I think is a huge absence. So I, I don't think it'd be straightforward. I don't think it'd be easy. I think it could be quite attritional. I think you've got to be patient. Uh, but I could sort of see it being sort of 65, 70 minutes then England substitutes turning it and you know, a couple of goals in the last 20 minutes or so. Wilson, do you think uh, Gareth will pull the handbrake up a tiny bit and go to a three at the back or will he, will it be still be on the full release that we're currently witnessing? No, I, I think it'll be the 4-3-3 again because I, I think England should should have sort of 60% of the ball. I think Senegal will be quite happy to give them that with that option of pressing. Um, so yeah, England can't mess about with it back. we've got to watch that. Uh, but yeah, I think fundamentally Senegal will sit quite deep. Uh, I think it'll be hard for England to to threaten them from set plays. It's obviously one of England's main main modes of attack. I think Senegal, are, yeah, they are just a very very big physical side. And I, I guess if it does go to penalties, and El Hadjouf was talking about this last week and pointing out Senegal have won two key penalty shots already this year. But what you'd say about that is a the player who scored the decisive penalty was Mane. And he's in both of them, and he's not there. And b there's a feeling, I mean, we saw it with Chelsea as well when they brought on Kepa for Mendy in the League Cup final last year, that 
they not convinced by Mendy as a, as a penalty saving keeper. You know, he saved enough against Egypt twice, but whether he's one of the best penalty saving keepers at this tournament, I, I doubt. So, uh, if it if it does stay nil nil and go to penalties, well, I don't think that's disastrous for England. It'd be fun if they tried to bring Kepper on somehow <laughs> wouldn't it Senegal have conceded from a cross in every game so it's got a Harry Maguire winner written all over it <laughs> meanwhile Nicky France play Poland Poland have been indescribably boring so far in this tournament seem very fortunate to have got through have, have they got any hope or do you have any hope that they might just be a bit more interesting in this football match I mean I think the hope comes from the fact that there's some players in that team who are obviously brilliant players obviously when you've got Robert Lewandowski up front you've got chances to do things but you got Piotr Zielinski in midfield as well, who I think very highly offers a footballer. But no, they've been, as you just said, Max, indescribably awful to watch this this um, this tournament so far. I suppose the other hope in, in this situation comes from the fact that despite being, I think, the best team in this tournament, the team that probably I expect to win on, on, on balance, France have also shown themselves to be vulnerable, haven't they? I mean, even from the very first game which they won 4-1 they conceded that early goal against Australia and you're a bit like hey hang on what's what's going on here so they aren't even though they are so potent going forward France you feel like they're capable of an implosion and if you're capable of an implosion against a team that has got the potential for a more creative performance in midfield the potential for just scoring a goal out of nowhere because you've got Lewandowski then there's there's a risk of, of a game breaking out but Again, I mean, I think more so than the England tie, this to me on, on paper looks like a, a very clearly favoured matchup for one team. Meanwhile, uh, messages of support for uh, Pele have been sent from across the world um, while the three-time World Cup winner and possibly greatest footballer ever is being treated in hospital. Uh, being reported he's receiving palliative care after chemotherapy treatment for colon cancer stopped having the expected results. Was admitted to the hospital on Tuesday. Um, Fora de San Paolo uh, reported that he's being treated only for symptoms such as pain and shortness of breath. Uh, his manager and the Albert Einstein Hospital in Sao Paulo uh, didn't immediately respond to requests for comments. Kylian Mbappe tweeted, pray for the king. Um, uh, your thoughts, Wilson? Yeah, it's obviously very, very sad. Um, in terms of how good a player he was, I, I sort of was, I mean, say a sceptic is obviously ludicrous. He was clearly a brilliant player, but I just sort of thought, oh, he's, he's an old player. How good could he have been? And when I was researching my Argentina book, I watched the 1963 Libertadores final when Santos beat Boca 5-3 over two legs. And he is unbelievable in that game. He just looks like a modern player dropped into the past. And it, it, he, he, yeah, they, they kick him over and over and over again. And his strength, his willingness to sort of ride challenges. He's got this, he's not that big a bloke. But he, 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 he had this great explosive pace and this balance uh, and just enough sort of muscle to get through. Uh, but just just totally controlled those two games while sort of fighting a battle while doing it. So I, I think it's it's very easy to sort of not realise just how sensational the player was. There's a really weird thing that's happened with Pelé, for, for my generation anyway, as someone who obviously was not around to, to watch him and, and see him in his heyday. I I don't know if, if it's more to do with recency or, or what, but I, I feel like the the legend of of Maradona and the the footage that I've seen of Maradona has felt much more sort of powerful. Of course I've also got some sort of Italian perspective in that and, and seeing things through the lens of Serie A, but I just feel like I've seen endless, endless footage of Maradona doing extraordinary things even before I was old enough to know about football. Whereas Pele, I've never really sort of found that 
seems to be in circulation. Everyone sort of agrees that Pele was brilliant, but but it's not that he's got this highlight reel that sort of jumps out at you like like Maradona juggling a, a ball in, in warm-ups even at, at the Maradona. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I wonder, Nicky, if that's because the people who make documentaries now were our age and were sort of, you know, Maradona was sort of on our radar as we were getting into football. We all know, we all saw him play. We all saw those moments. And Pele is kind of reported, you know, like you have to dig it out. Like wasn't have to dig out that that game from 63. And and that changes the, that just changes the story of, of a player, I guess. But I think there's just less footage of him, isn't there? So things like his volley in the 58 World Cup final, it's sort of amazing because it's a 17-year-old. People go, oh, it's this amazing one. And you look at it in modern eyes, he flicks it very slowly over a very slow defender and hits it not that hard. And you think, well, really? That's the thing we're getting excited about? And, and so I think that's why I had that, that doubt. And you know, A lot of the things that, that he's famous for are things that go wrong. So you know, his, his dummy uh, against Uruguay in, in the... This, yeah, is it the quarterfinal or the semi-final? Um, but he misses. He shot from halfway line, misses. And you, you, know, you sort of think of his, his pass to Carlos Alberto at the end of that game again it's not him scoring but it is a beautiful assist perfectly weighted to a man hurtling outside it uh, but yeah I, I, I sort of think the it's very hard to sort of, I, you know, in, for Maradona it's very easy to pick out his second goal against England as this is sensational with Pele I think you, yeah, you do have to go looking for it a bit harder but if anybody wants to see why he was you know, why he is as highly regarded as, as he is in Brazil dig out the YouTube highlights of, of those 63 Libertadores finals. We, of course, uh, wish him well. Uh, at changing tack, Nicky, what is happening at Juventus? Last Monday, their entire board, including the chairman and Super League fundamentalist Andrea Agnelli, resigned. Can you, in one of those, which is very good, please treat me like an idiot. Our listeners are probably smarter. But if you can, in very sort of Fisher-Price terms, explain what the hell is happening. Yeah, it's it's really hard to sort of make it super succinct because there is a lot going on. So what you have is, at the, as a starting point, um, Kovacuk, which is a watchdog for football in Italy, a little bit over a year ago, produced this sort of rap sheet, I suppose, of, of 62 transfers that they considered to have been worth looking at because they felt like there was some amount of artificial inflation happening on player values to look good on balance sheets effectively for clubs. And this wasn't just Juventus involved. Juventus were involved with, I think, 42 out of the 62 transfers, but there were 11 clubs in total involved. It was a a broad sort of accusation of, or at least a suggestion that someone in football needed to look into this. So that gets past the Italian Football Federation. The Italian Football Federation does its own inquiry and Juventus were cleared along with every other club in that inquiry um, because the sporting justice looked at it and said, in the end, players' transfer values are not something that you can put a, t- a hard value on. They are what they are. People will pay what they pay. And, and that's very hard to make a, a, an objective judgment on. However, what happened as a result of this initial Kovisok, I can't think how to describe it because it's not an inquiry by them, but their they're, they're initial... It's like an audit? Is yes, it? What is audit it? is probably a good way to put it. Is that the um, prosecutor in Turin also picked up this information and started digging. And the prosecutor found because it used much more extensive search powers, including wiretaps, including um, eventually a, a sort of search and seize at the um, Juventus training grounds and at their HQ. So the initial part of that was broadly referred to in Italy as the Plus Valenza case, which is a capital gains case, because what you're doing is 
allegedly the allegation is if you misreport players values on your on your books if you do player trades which are typically exchange deals in which both players are valued higher both clubs can make their balance sheets look nicer that's the plus valenza part of it and that's the starting point for the prosecutor's investigation but the prosecutors when they started doing wiretaps when they did the search and seize find all sorts of other things out and among the things that they found out that seems to be really at the heart of the explosive part of this is Juventus reported that they were um, made an agreement during COVID with their players to give up three months of salary and the accusation that is now being charged is players did not give up three months of salary they maybe gave up about one month's worth of salary now Juventus absolutely deny all wrongdoing and um, they believe this is a question of how you interpret accounting data they say that it's um simply about how you report things and they believe that what they've done is completely within the lines and fine the allegations though are are very serious because the allegations are um false financial statements and they are of manipulating the markets because of course Juventus are a publicly listed club so if you're reporting things that go into your financial statements and you're saying out loud our players are given up three months worth of salary and then it turns out they haven't that's something that can affect your share price. And that's something where the um, stock market is also interested in what's going on. So so these are serious allegations that are denied and they're going to go to two separate processes now. And, you know, to put that into context, Andrea Agnelli, who has been certainly on the pitch, unprecedented in his success as president of the club. They won nine consecutive league titles that never happened before in Italy. They went to two Champions League finals. They also achieved things off the pitch, which I think were objectively sort of a big step forward for Juventus in terms of modernising. You know, he wasn't the person who started the stadium project, but he was there for the inauguration. After that, they secured some huge sponsorship deals. They also got a Netflix series, an Amazon Prime series. They updated their logo. So he's been this sort of force of nature at the club. And the timing of this all happening is next year is the centenary of the Agnelli family owning Juventus. So there's no way that he wanted to step down and step away from this project at this time. So I think, again, absolutely, this is a really sort of um, not preempting anything from what's going to come out of this, because I think you have to be really careful not to make any assumptions on that front. But I think at the very least, you acknowledge from that that this is something that Juventus are taking very seriously because you you don't take such a a strong decision as the entire dissolution of the board unless you think that's a really important step to protect the club and to protect everyone um, who's been involved in it. So it, it's a huge story. Um, where it ends up is is really, really impossible to say. What we can say now is there is this Football Federation investigation following the law as it's written in the Italian Football Federation, it seems like potential penalties, if there is found to be financial wrongdoing, could be fines, could be points penalties. That's the broad outline of what could happen. The consequences on the pitch are are easier to map out and could be quite damaging to the club, getting thrown out of Europe and having points penalties. These are, are serious implications. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the charges in terms of how they could affect them in the stock market and the criminal cases, of course, are even more serious because you're talking about people's lives that are going to be affected. But I think 
really, really a dangerous area to speculate about. I think that's that's something that you just have to let that process run its course. John Elkin, the chief executive of Exor, the holding company that owns Juventus on behalf of the Agnelli family, stressed on Tuesday that the first task of the new board will be to restore stability while resolving the legal issues faced by the club, saying he had trust that, quote, the club will demonstrate it always acted correctly. The club denies any wrongdoing. As Nicky has said, Juve announced on Monday that new financial statements will be released for last season, guided by, quote, new legal and accounting opinions from independent experts. Um, uh, uh, elsewhere Wilson Peter says thoughts on Sunderland's 3-0 win over Millwall is odd that the championship has begun again during the World Cup but well done Wilson you won 3-0 yeah and obviously sharing a, a, a flat with a, one of Millwall's most ardent fans it was uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. a measure of delight this afternoon was was Barney singing no one likes us we don't care all, all afternoon I mean he had me in a headlock for most of the day so yeah <laughs> of course he did it's flat cap on you know Ron eh? Um meanwhile Cambridge United the ultimate following football on Twitter pain 89 minutes, 1-1, retweeting all of the gifts and everything. 90 minutes, penalty to Forest Green. 90-plus, Connor Wickham converts. Absolutely hate football. A friend of the pod, Suffocated Kumquat Rap, says, look, with all the drama of the final group games, the start of the knockouts and continuing controversies coming out of this World Cup, important stories elsewhere in the sporting world can fall through the cracks. Have you seen this? And what's your take? Controversial, in my opinion. The Sun reporting, Joe Hart holding hands with his wife as the ex-England star goes away. <laughs> Way during the World <laughs> Cup, <laughs> the, the wind and the, the wind and the rain. How is this a story? It's amazing. Fair enough. Anyway, it got us going. Uh, Barry says, "Is Jonathan Wilson okay? The stress of week one seemed to have weighed heavy on him." I was very tired last time I spoke to you. Uh, I'm less tired now. I've kind of. It's but the problem is these games start at ten o'clock, so yeah, they finish at late. midnight. By the time you've done the press conference, written up your piece get back through the traffic it's often sort of half three by the time you're getting to bed and then and then barney has moved all your furniture out of your room <laughs> you know onto the balcony hasn't he yeah he's uh, just so much cut, cut the laces out of all my shoes so. <laughs> of course he has <laughs> he's done a poo on your bed <laughs> you know what he's like absolute he's a rot he's a rotter isn't but he the, the, yeah the problem when you're getting half three you know you, you kind of it obviously gets light at, I don't know, half six, seven. So you, you're just sort of waking yeah. up at half seven, eight. It's, uh, it's, it's not been a tournament with much sleep. No, uh, okay, well, uh, we'll let you go to bed then. Uh, thank you for your time today, Jonathan. Cheers, thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 